Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 63. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How's it going, man? I'm doing great. Beautiful day. Yes. Finally, we agree on the weather. It's good for you, and it's good for me. Yeah. It's been strangely cool this week and rainy and cloudy. Actually, I took um, one of my children to Six Flags on Wednesday, and it was a great morning, and then it rained. And we got on a couple of rides afterwards. It rained again and then it poured. I mean, just it just opened up. There were rivers of water flowing down the streets of Six Flags. Oh, bummer. But we still had a good time anyway. It was good memories. Have your kids been to Six Flags before? One of them had. This is my youngest that I took. Introduced her to uh, some good roller coasters. We tried to like start low and go higher and higher and higher until she got to the point where she said, okay, that's enough for me. But the Georgia... The Georgia Cyclone is no longer the Georgia Cyclone. Right. It's now called the like the Twisting Cyclone. And it's not just the up and down wooden roller coaster it used to be. It actually twisted and went upside down several times. And oh, it was such a great roller coaster. But it was a bit rough to introduce as your first big girl roller coaster, that particular one for her. <laughs> she was like, ah, that was scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I remember it being really rickety. So yeah, for our audience, uh, You've been on those old-fashioned rickety roller coasters. The Georgia Cyclone roller coaster was the epitome of that. Yeah, it was modeled after the Cyclone in Coney Island on purpose, made of wood. Yeah. So it seems like they've gutted it, maybe uh, replaced 60% of it, because you can still see parts of it that that seem to be the same. Yeah. And it feels like a much more modern thing now. And I tell you what, it ranks up in my top 10 roller coasters. Yeah, it does. I've been on a lot of roller coasters in my life. I love roller coasters. And this was just a very sweet ride. You know, it wasn't as aggressive as like like Batman or the Georgia Scorcher. And it was just it was just right. Just short enough, just enough to scream. Yeah. A couple loop-de-loops in there. It was, it was good. But the thing is, you just said that you wrote it and you liked it at your age. How old are you? Wait a minute. Don't say it. Don't answer that question. How how did you enjoy a roller coaster at your age? I didn't know people did. Oh, not just any roller coaster, one that twists and goes upside down. Yeah. Uh, about five years ago, maybe six, I took my son to Six Flags in December, and it was almost freezing. It was cold, and it was nighttime, and there was no lines, and we went on four roller coasters in a row. And after that, I looked at him and said, son... You can ride on as many roller coasters as you want, but that's done. <laughs> I didn't get on any yes. other because I couldn't. My your um your ear canals they don't equilibrate at when you're old like they do when you're young, right? Like all the little hairs in your semicircular canals flatten out or something. And I'm literally I was dizzy for like six hours afterwards. Right. So I went to Six Flags a month ago with my kids, and we had a great time, but it was rough on me. Yeah. I rode six roller coasters, and I spread them out throughout the day. And Smart. The Cyclone ride was the last one that I did, and it was my favorite of the day. But I also was already feeling sick by the time I did it. <laughs> now, the Batman, I just wish that, that they could improve the Batman, because you get to the end... And it slams on the brakes and jerks while it does it. And that yep. always gives you an instant headache. Yep. If it wasn't for that, the Batman ride would be awesome. I was going to say it was super, but not to be confused with a Superman ride, which is not awesome. No. <sighs> and yet, we're talking about Six Flags over Georgia rides specifically. And the rest of the listening audience is like, we have no idea what these people are talking about because they have access Except to different You, you kind of know so, what anyway. to expect from Six Flags in general. You, you got right. an idea. That's right. Now, if anybody wants to know, Rob, do you know how many theme parks, uh, like roller coaster parks, you've been to? Um, well, Six Flags Over New Jersey, um, Bush Gardens in Virginia, Six Flags of Georgia, and after that, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, m- multiple ones in Florida. Really? See, I haven't been that many. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Do you have a favorite? Is Georgia pretty good on the rank? Um, I don't have a favorite. Okay. Because I know people who are very specific about their theme park. Well, I don't pay attention to theme parks. I just go to ride roller coasters. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, so I don't, I don't care about anything else in theme park. And I'll just go and stand online at roller coasters only. Now, I can't do that anymore because I can't ride that many in a single day, which is very sad. No. But yeah. 
the physics of it is amazing. I love the physics. Just the fact that you can bring a rolly car up to the top of a hill and let it go, and it can do all this stuff under its own power. That's just crazy. I mean, who designs that, and how do they get it to go to the end and not stop upside down on the loop or something like that, and everyone fall out and die? So the physics of it is just amazing. All right. I am adding it to the queue of future topics. Physics of roller coasters? Roller coaster rides, yeah. Rock on. All right. If it's not happening in this show, it's going to happen in Equinox Plus either way. Okay, that makes sense. When I was teaching high school, the physics teacher every year, she took the, the senior, might have just been the AP physics class or just might have been anyone who's taking physics as a senior. And we did physics day at Six Flags every May. And it was, you know, you have all these learning modules and the kids build an accelerometer and all that stuff. <laughs> Four years of going there. No child at the entire theme park, which was packed with seniors in high school from around the state, probably Alabama too. No one was doing schoolwork. <laughs> what a ridiculous thought that anyone would use this as a school day. You're a senior. You're graduating in three weeks. You're not going to do any work. <laughs> one time I saw this nerdy guy. <clears throat> sorry. Not you. Oh. And uh, he had a um, his his plastic accelerometer in his hand, and he's like online. And I just slapped my head like, dude, no, man, go talk to a girl. <laughs> what are you doing? Put yeah. that thing away. Yeah, I didn't tell him that, but I was, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> wow. You know what we used to do is homeschool day at Six Flags. That was fun. Yeah, I bet. They, get, they treat you to lunch. Oh. Everybody's homeschooling family. Yeah, it was good times. Cool. So big news this week, the battle of the billionaires. <laughs> yeah, making new records. Yeah, Jeff Bezos hasn't gotten off the ground yet. Richard Branson, Elon Musk, these three guys are trying to go to space and they're fighting each other. And Richard Branson finally almost went to space. <laughs> <laughs> Sucker. And he's got his really cool thing where he's got this, this, this really weird jet plane and it carries this uh, Y-shaped space plane underneath it and gets way high altitude and the space plane drops away and the rockets turn on and it blasts its way to outer space. And, woo, and then you come right back down again. <laughs> I mean, it's not an orbital flight. I don't know if they're planning orbital flights, but you know, okay, so I've been to space. But actually, um, according to the height, he really didn't quite go to space at all. Yeah. Can I read a quote from the article then? Yes, please, please. All right. So how do you pronounce this website? Jalopnik? Sorry, everybody. I, I'm not familiar with pronouncing that one. I don't know. Jalopnik. You probably know the one if you've seen it before. So the billionaire Richard Branson went to 53.5 miles into the sky on Sunday, short of the, how do you pronounce that? Kaman line? Kaman? Carmen. Carmen line. Carmen line. Okay which is 62 miles above sea level and where it is generally agreed that space begins. Branson did surpass 50 miles above sea level, above which NASA gives out astronaut wings. Yes. And the dude went 50 miles in the air, man. That's really cool. But yeah, you didn't quite... Because what is space? How do you define it? Okay, okay. I, I got it right. I got it. Yeah? Where the atmosphere ends. Like where the blue haze disappears. But the atmosphere doesn't end. There is no end to the atmosphere. It just gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah, I know. But where you, to the naked eye, you can no longer see the blue haze. Like no. th that problem solved. No, no, no. I, I would define it as the point at which you can orbit a couple times without so much friction that your orbit immediately decays and you plunge to your death. Oh, okay. So that would be a significant distance into the blackness, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because, it, because just because it's black doesn't mean there's no molecules there. There's molecules at the height of the International Space Station. They're very hot molecules. The sun strikes the upper atmosphere, the atmosphere boils away. And these very hot, very diffuse, there's not many of them there, uh, are up there impacting the space station. So does that mean the space station is in the atmosphere? Yeah, yeah it sure is. Oh, see, that's confusing. I, I disagree with this logic. <laughs> well, it depends and then it depends. And that's the point of this story about Richard Branson. Okay. Um, didn't quite make it. Yeah. So you asked me earlier, you know, how'd Richard Branson get his money? So he's got this airline and, and what well, I learned, he, he made his money 50 years ago <laughs> right. with a mail-in LP vinyl record company. Really? Yeah. You know, one of those 
sign up for the record of the month deals and we'll oh. send you for $5.95 a month. We'll keep sending you records and cancel any time and you fight, get to cancel for two years and so you get all these records you didn't want. Yeah, that guy. He was that guy. I'm sure that they did it. I know they did it with cassette tapes. They probably did it with DVDs in your era. Yeah. That was him. And he, be, he got lots of money. And then he's been using that. I, he, I think he owns like $4.8 billion or something like that. So he's not mega rich like a couple of other people in the world who are much richer than him. But he's way up there in the big boys club. And he's been up to 53.3 miles up into the atmosphere. Yeah. And I am a little jealous, but... So be it. Curious. So I'm online and I'm trying to say, okay, that's Richard Branson. What's SpaceX doing right now? I'm ready for the next launcher and I, I, I'm ready for them to do the orbital launch of the Starship. And like, when's it going to happen? I keep looking, I keep looking. So I got on, I got on SpaceX's website and I'm clicking around and I ran into a link to the Dear Moon Project, which I had vaguely heard about, but I had never really seen it spelled out. A Japanese entrepreneur businessman named Yes. Yusaka Yusaku Yusaku Mezawa. Yes. He bought all the seats on the first moonshot for SpaceX. Is he going to sell them? No, he's looking for people. So on SpaceX's website, they said in 2023, Japanese entrepreneur Yusaku Mezawa and the crew of Dear Moon will become the first civilian passengers on a lunar starship mission featuring a flyby of the moon during their week long journey. The Dear Moon Project is currently accepting applications for eight civilians to join Yusaku Mezawa on the Starship flight. Are you kidding me? Oh, oh me, me, me. How do you get an audience with this man? Oh, man. And so there, well, we're going to have a link in the show notes to the Dear Moon Project. And I clicked on it. And sure enough, there's a, a message from Elon and Musaku. Um, and there's a video on it, and they, you know, the Dear Moon Project, the first civilian mission to the moon, is planned to take place in 2023. And this guy purchased all the seats, and he wants to give as many talented individuals as possible the opportunity to go. Oh, oh man, brilliant. I wish I was like 20, 30 years old again and wasn't, you know, 52. I'm not going now. There's no way anyone's going to ever send me to space. If you can this handle is- roller coasters, you can handle a trip to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's not a land on the moon moon. It's around the moon. Yeah, easier. Way easier. A lot lot easier, yes. You're just making more reasons for why you could handle that. Yeah, there's only one thing to hit, and that's the Earth at the end. And they're not going to land on the moon, but it's, it's, you can't land, you can't get to the moon without practicing getting people to the moon first, just like an Apollo. First Apollo mission went around the moon and came back again, sadly. (laughs) And then the next (laughs) one is the one where they actually landed. Oh, man. So, anyway. That's there. If anyone listening says, hey, I want to go around the moon, you can maybe in two years. (laughs) Out of all the people in all the world, to be one of those people, just I imagine everything will have to be streamed, don't you think, by that time? I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a lot of streaming, yes. There's going to be a significant delay, though, so you can't easily have a, a conversation or a video chat, but you can definitely have a stream in one direction still incredible yeah really good story wow that's amazing so how are your bees doing we haven't talked about bees in a long time they're doing very well i saw them making a bee beard a couple of days ago they're sitting out oh. on the front porch a lot there's a lot of okay. them very happy just enjoying the sun chilling but they really did make a beard they're hanging down they did and it looked like a beard on my bee box it looked like okay. a beard like like as much as bees can make it look like a beard that i could have worn if i wanted a beard i could have used theirs yes and people have done that mm. um that means that it's very hot in the box and they are sending everyone outside to cool it off a little bit so should i do something about that don't know. should i relocate to the shade no not necessarily the sunny beehives have less beetles than the beetle than the beehives in the shade i've read oh good so okay yeah, and you know, most beekeepers are very successful keeping their bee houses out in the bright sun in the middle of a field. Mine, my beehive never gets sun; it's under a tree because I don't have any sunny spots in my entire yard. No, you don't. Yeah, until y'all understand, everybody. Rob literally, his house is like inside of the forest of Endor. It's just surrounded <laughs> by giant mosquitoes and these teddy bears that walk around, and it's damp and huge trees. That's where he lives. Well, the subdivision was built uh, a long time ago, 
And uh, the scrubby trees that they didn't cut down have now grown into foot and a half in diameter and 70 feet tall. So yeah, there's no, sh- there's no sunlight here. Now, how are your bees doing though? Did you go into the box? I haven't yet because every time I try, it's a rainy day. Or every time I have the opportunity, it's a rainy day. Same here. But I did take off the uh, beetle traps that we installed on the bottom and yeah, yuck. <laughs> or oh, were they full? No, no, no beetles. But two of them were completely filled with moldy fuzz. Ooh. Yeah. What so was I, the fuzz? I don't Just know. Just the mold? I don't know. Because all I put in there was um, oil and uh, vinegar. Okay. So vinegar to attract the beetles and oil to smother them. And just a little bit too, but all, all the sides are completely blue fuzz. Ugh, so I, well, at least it, they weren't full of lots and lots of beetles, like you had a problem or something. Uh, yeah, well, they might have been in there, but I couldn't tell because of all the blue fuzz. But they yeah. had also, they had sealed off the, um, the grating on top. They, they, they had put, completely plugged it with wax. With their propolis, huh? Yeah, propolis. So I, I took my fingernails and, and picked off all those thingies. Oh, so when you say thingies, you mean like bits of the wax that sealed it together? Yeah. Yeah, that was sticking down through all those little one-eighth inch holes. I imagine you could just use a scraper too. Yeah. Yeah, I could have. But my fingers and nails were right there. And so I just click, 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 click and just picked it off. Oh, cool. Yeah. Not too hard. No. And there was two drones on the front with a worker bee like on the drone, like holding the drone. And like, is that bee fighting with the drone? And so I just crushed the drones because, oh. you know, they're just drones. I mean- and I don't really want to murder anything, but they don't do anything for my hive. Okay. And I'm like, if that's a foreign drone who's coming into my hive that the bee's fighting with, I just took care of it. But that means there might be other instances and I would not even see most of them because I'm not out there watching this beehive every day. Oh, In fact, I as see. the season goes on, I check it less and less often because, you know, that's how life works. Well, don't you think it'd be good if the girls sent a message to all of the intruders like, here is the head of your drone and drop it in front of another beehive. Like. <laughs> well, one of them, I, I, I knocked the head of this drone off and it was lying there on the entryway and a bee came up and grabbed it and was like wrestling with it. And eventually, eventually she flew off with it <laughs> because I've noticed that when they take out dead bees, they don't drop them right in front of the hive. They fly away with them. I don't know where they drop them, but it's not right in front of the beehive. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. And so she just flew off with his drone head. I, I was totally making that up. I didn't realize they would actually do that sort of thing. <laughs> that's incredible. Sending a message to the others, I think. I, I, w- I do intend to get in and uh, inspect. I want to see honey. I want to see lots of hive. I, I know I'm going to see lots of bees because they've been plentiful coming and going. It's been a good season. It's been a great summer. We've had a, a fairly decent balance of rain and sunshine l- lately. And it's just really ideal for them if I can understand anything about the, the conditions that they would need around here. It seems to be pretty good. But we've had a lot of rain, so it's not great yes, for us have. to go into the hive, yeah. No, but I know my bees have been collecting hunt, uh, pollen this entire time. The pollen they're collecting now is kind of like a dull, burnt orange color. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, and, but we have one more honey flow this year, and it's, it's the mid-August, early September. And my beehive has not put on much mass. It hit 44 kilograms and pretty much has set there for about a month. So I'm waiting for a last big push of the year for them to put on more mass. But we'll see what happens. Okay. Excellent. Well, and I'm going to get to the bees and let you know, Rob, as soon as possible. I I want to tell you all about what they look like on the inside. Me too. I'm dying to to know. I just haven't been able to do it. So another story lately is uh, you've had uh, something of... uh, 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 someone challenging you in your creation-related research. Oh, yes. Um, uh, there's a, a group of very outspoken people out there that most pe- listeners to the show understands that there are outspoken people out there. And for some strange reason, a couple of them decided to take on something that I had done. When I wrote a response to that, they came out with another video, another hour-long video on my uh, one of my biblical genetics programs called the waiting time problem, which I was very proud of. I thought I did a pretty good job on that one. And they, they tried to tear me to shreds. And most of their arguments were garbage. But it is um, hard, shall we say, to take someone that you know they're not telling the truth, but you also know that if you make any mistake, they're going to jump on it. They're going to capitalize upon it. And they're going to twist it into something that it's not. And so I knew that this is treacherous waters to wade into, but they had challenged me directly and they did a, a video called, you know, basically Robert Carter gets everything wrong. And that was the title of their YouTube video. 
And I did not reply with a YouTube video myself because I didn't want to get into a YouTube battle, even though it would have driven readership or watchership on my channel. I also knew that it would never end because there are people in the world who refuse to let you have the last word. Yeah. And sure enough, they, hey, just let you know, um, we're going to do a video on this this week. And you, we're glad to have you on. You know, you can sh- show up and we'll talk about it. It's like, no way. No way. Because if you say something that I'm not sure about, it's going to take me hours to figure out how to respond. And that's not something to have in a conversation. So that's why I had it all written down. This is something that you've figured out and the ministry as a whole understands from 40 years of ministry experience that there are times and places where certain types of debates are effective and they are uplifting and edifying and make a difference for the people engaged in them and the audience. And then there are the other debates where really it, it's much more circular and it, it, it doesn't develop. It doesn't really serve uh, the, the people trying to really get to the truth. We're all for debates that are good for getting to the truth. Nobody's opposed to that. We want, we want that kind of outcome. Yeah, but talking in circles, talking back and forth, saying things, well, no, 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 no. You have to redefine terms and then the other person denies your definition and it just goes on forever. And it's not really productive or conducive to any sort of learning. So I, I literally have not, and I'm not going to respond to any further things here. I've said my piece. And yet, you know, some people say, oh, you know, you said this, but this person answered all your things right here. And they give me a link. And my response is, just because a person said I was wrong doesn't mean I was. And that's all I can say. Because if I say, no, I'm not wrong, here's why. They're going to say something else again. And like that, um, uh, um, that Seinfeld episode where George was trying to get the, the zinger at the end of a conversation. He was trying to, this one-liner that was like the best thing ever to say. And he has his coworker and his coworker. Every time George gives the best comeback ever, the coworker snaps back with another one, leaves George flat-footed, and he can't think of a response. <laughs> and then this guy leaves to a different company, and George arranges for a business meeting that has no purpose whatsoever. And he flies to wherever this business meeting is, and he's in the business meeting, and he delivers the line. And the guy <laughs> has a comeback. He's like, dude! Oh! And at the end, he's driving to the airport. And he thinks of a, of a comeback to the comeback and he just, he slams the car in a circle and that's the end of the episode because he's going to, you know, go, but that's what it, that's what it feels like. The never ending nonsense debates. I've just never uh, seen that as the perfect metaphor, but that is a really great metaphor for your circumstance. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Now, you know, homeschoolers like their debates. Did you ever judge any kind of debates like that for students? No. I mean, I was in a debate once on stage that we sold for about 10 years, but... I filmed it. I edited it. That's right. You did. You did. Yeah. That was a long time ago, man. That was before you knew me. You were famous. I was nobody. I was famous? Oh, boy. I was brand new in the creation world. I had no business being up on that stage. Well, you did a good job. If if I did it again today, it would be a very different experience, but that's all right. Oh, I'm sure. That's all right. I enjoyed that debate. That DVD is still floating around. People could still find a copy if they wanted. That's right. The the great Dothan creation evolution debate. Anyway, now's a good time to continue with our discussion about the terraforming of the planets. Yes. We left off in the middle of our conversation last time because I knew that if we kept going, it would be forever before we, we finished. We might have the moon terraformed by then, yeah. Yeah, we might. We might. So we talked about how we could take the moon and Mars and convert them into some sort of living space for humans. We talked about the problems that each of these places has, not enough gravity, no magnetic fields, so you can't stop the solar wind from ripping away your atmosphere, and no magnetic field, therefore the cosmic rays get in, you have too much uh, radiation exposure. Those are big deals. The next obvious candidate, which actually is one of my first obvious candidates, except for one big problem, which we'll get to, is Venus. I like Venus. I always have. Well, unlike the moon, Venus has 90% Earth gravity. It's almost perfect. And unlike Mars, Venus is a lot closer. It's a lot easier to fall into Venus than to have to rocket yourself up to Mars. Except, um, well, we can easily put a heater on a spacesuit and have a guy walk around on Mars. No problem. You can't put an air conditioner big enough on a person to get them to walk around on Venus. I mean, it's literally a furnace lead would be molten on the surface of Venus. 
<laughs> and you can't have this air conditioning doesn't work at this point because you have to pump heat from one place to another. Where are you going to pump it to? You're the cold spot. It'd be almost impossible to keep something cool on the surface of that planet. And it's about 90 atmospheres of pressure. <laughs> so one atmosphere of pressure underwater is 30 something feet. So 927, 270. It's like, it's like 3,000 feet of water. Am I doing that correctly? 2,000 feet of water or something like that. It's, I mean, it's way down 90 atmospheres. Way, way, way deep. And it's hole crushing. You don't, you don't send submarines at these depths. And so it's super hot and super, super, super heavy. And I don't even think sunlight reaches the surface. Yes, it does, because the, the Russians had pictures of it. Okay, never mind. Sunlight does reach the surface. But it's, it's a thick... You don't see the sky. You don't see the sun. You don't see stars. There's too much stuff in the atmosphere. And um, I think actually the killer argument here is that it has a 116-day day. Wow, wow. Once every 116 days. That's a lot of days. Yeah, well, yeah. So what do you do? You're going to be in, in daylight for 116 days in a row? You can't have plants. You're going to fry. And then what happens when you get around to the away from the sun? You have 160, or actually not 116 days of sun, half of that. So 50, 58 days, 58 days of sunlight and 58 days of shade. That's not cool, man. Yeah, even when you cut that number in half, it's still bad. Yeah. And so there are ridiculous ideas about how to get the planet to spin. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can do it. We know the physics. We know how much energy it would take. But where does this energy come from? We have this a problem. It's called economics. I mean, yeah, we could we could send comets or 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 um, not meteors. What are those things called? Asteroids and smack into Venus at an angle and get the thing to spin. And we know how much mass that would take. And we, in fact, we even know where these things would be. But who's going to spend money doing that? And this is my big conclusion about all these terraforming ideas. Even though I love the concept, why not just build a space station, man? Build a big space station. It's so much easier than trying to convert Venus into living space. And it also doesn't solve any problems. Because if you know people, oh, we're running out of room on planet Earth. Okay, we'll run out of room on Venus also very quickly. As soon as you start putting people there, they start having babies. And exponential population <laughs> growth means you know within a, a short amount of time, you spent quadrillions of dollars and you're already filled. So it's not an argument for we need more space. And some people say, oh, we have to move off Earth because you know some natural disaster is going to destroy all human beings on planet Earth. So we have to go to a different planet in order to survive. Yeah, maybe. There's no guarantee that a natural disaster strikes Earth and won't strike Venus at the same time. Or to put it another way, life on Mars, Venus, or the moon will be a lot more precarious than it ever will be on Earth. Oh, yeah. All, it'll always be more precarious. More likely that something is going to go wrong and everyone there is going to die. So it's not really a safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. But the biggest problem, besides all the ones we just listed, is the carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, our atmosphere is like 0.03% carbon dioxide. Venus is 90% carbon dioxide. And it's 90 times more dense. There's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere of Venus. Where do you put it? You can't leave it in the atmosphere because you get this runaway greenhouse effect. What do you do with it? You can't turn it into plant material because you could never have enough plants to do that. And plus, plants would spontaneously combust at that temperature anyway. So, so there's all these ideas. They said, oh, we can convert it into graphite. Some pretty simple chemical reactions and organically convert into graphite. Woohoo! And then you have a solid carbon. The thing is, graphite would spontaneously combust at that temperature, so you'd never be able to get graphite. Oh. Oh, no, no. Let's take carbon. Um, let's take um, a calcium. Let's find some calcium-rich meteorites and throw them at Venus or even mine it on Mercury and send parts of Mercury to Venus. And we could convert the carbon dioxide to carbonate, like limestone. Or maybe there's some stuff in the crust of Venus itself that we can shoot up into the atmosphere and convert the carbon into carbonate. And basically, we just take all that carbon dioxide and make a giant coating of limestone on the surface of Venus. That would kind of work, sort of, except you need trillions of tons of the stuff and you'd have to transport it and that transportation costs money. And why would we waste all our time and money doing that? Just build a space station. Or what if you took it and you sent it away from Venus? What you just you know, put it in a rocket and, and shoot it away from Venus? Well, you, we can figure out, like, you think like um, a carbon atom is not very heavy, right? Just put an ion accelerator and have it jet away from the planet. No problem, right? Right. 
Well, no, because we know the mass of a single <laughs> atom, and we know the mass of all the atoms in the atmosphere. And if you add it up, the amount of energy it would take to raise all those carbon atoms to escape velocity above the, the, the uh, gravitational well of Venus, that's more than the energy output of all of humankind and all of human history. Plus, there's just not enough energy in the, in, in the solar system to do this. So the best idea that I can think of that, that other people have thought of also is build a giant umbrella. Put a sun shield between the sun and Venus and let it cool off. If you completely shield Venus from the sun, Venus will freeze. Literally, it will freeze. Hmm. The, um, the water will freeze out. The carbon dioxide will snow out. And you have all this carbon dioxide, literally, um, dry ice. You have dry ice on the entire surface of Venus. The atmosphere will become transparent. And then you can decide how much carbon dioxide you want to put back into the atmosphere. In fact, if you ever wanted to live on Venus, you're going to have to build a sun shield. First of all, the day is too long. So you, you can't have the sun up that long. You'll fry. So you have to shield yourself from the sun. But what you can do is you can build rotating space mirrors that are orbiting Venus. And they can change the angle of the space mirror so that any area of Venus will get you know, 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of darkness. Mm. But you have to be able to control it. And that's really tricky. I mean, we can do it. I mean, the physics is easy. The material science is not easy because, you know, sunlight destroys things in outer space. But theoretically, you can take a giant mylar balloon or just a mylar sheet. It doesn't have to be thick. It just has to reflect. And you could have these things orbiting and you have to replace them every once in a while. But then you also have the problem of the solar wind. If you put a big mylar sheet out in space, it becomes a solar sail. It's not going to stay in place. Mm. The solar wind is going to blow it. And so, ah, you have all these weird geometries and configurations and maybe little jet engines yeah. to, to keep the rocket engines, to keep these things in place in the orbit. And it'll be a, a maintenance nightmare, but theoretically possible. Do we wow. want to do that is the question. Maybe we should put Venus on the back burner, move on to another world. Hmm. I think we should do the moon first, honestly. Oh, well, and yeah. we need to ton tunnel into the moon. We need to live beneath the moon's surface in tunnels. That is a cool idea. I, I guess. I mean, why don't you do that on Earth? Yeah, Who would want to? Says, yeah. <laughs> no, right. But it goes back to the economic question we, had, we talked about last time. If we can figure out a way to make money, we'll do it. If we can't make money, why would we do it? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we can put Venus on the back burner. It's not going to happen within a few centuries. Even if we started today, it will be centuries before anyone could step foot on the surface of that planet. Real quick, does Venus have a moon to... I don't think it has a moon, right? No. Okay, because I was going to say we could take advantage of a moon around Venus, but I don't think they have one. No, but why? Why not just... We, we could put a whole bunch of space stations on Earth's orbit around the moon, around the sun. Giant space stations hold, you know, 100,000 people each, and they're rotating. Sure. And somehow they're maybe magnetically shielded to keep, you know, keep this, the, the space radiation from killing everybody. And you just put one every so many angles away so you can have like a hundred of them all around the sun in orbit and be very easy to get there as soon as you get out of the earth's gravity well you just go sideways you don't have to get away from the sun you don't have to fall toward the sun those things are difficult you just go sideways in the orbit around the earth and you could easily get from one to the other to the, to the other that'd be much smarter to do that yeah but then again same question how do you make money <laughs> we'll get there when we get there yeah they'll get there they'll figure it out somehow so all right so let's leave venus behind let's go to mercury Mercury is perhaps my favorite planet because it's so incredibly hostile sometimes to life. It has a very strange orbit. It's, it's Einstein's theories apply to Mercury. It's so close to the sun that you have to apply, uh, blah, 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 what's that called? Relativity. You have to apply relativity to Mercury's orbit or you can't explain Mercury's orbit. And the other strange thing about Mercury is it does rotate very, very slowly. But because it's orbiting, it has an elliptical orbit, so sometimes it's moving faster in its orbit than other times, when you couple that to its rotation, Mercury will literally stop. Or the, if you're on Mercury, the sun would literally stop in the sky and then start moving again and speed up again. When the spin of Mercury matches the orbital uh, velocity, it literally, it's not moving with respect to the sun. It's not spinning with respect to the sun, and it just stops in the sky, and broils the surface. And it mm. happens at the caloris basin. Now, caloric, of course, meaning calories, heat. It's a, a huge impact crater. 
on on the surface of Mercury, and it's the deepest part in Mercury, and it is the same spot where the sun stops moving in the sky. So it's like the worst place you would ever want to be in the whole, whole solar system would be in that spot at solar noon on Mercury. In fact, I wrote a short story. I called it 88 Days. I, um, I publish on, on, on Kindle. If anyone wants to get it, it's a dollar. Anyway, it's a, a short story. It's about the first manned mission to Mercury. And they, these guys go there and they set up a drilling apparatus and they start drilling and they start sending samples back to Earth because everyone on Earth wants to know what's in there, see if they can make money drilling into Mercury. And then they, as the sun is about to come up, they get in their spaceship and they push the button to launch and the spaceship is broken. And they have to make a decision. Do we sit here and die? Do we try to fix this spaceship in, in the next day? Or do we run? Because as long as you can stay ahead of sunrise, you can survive on Mercury. And it only moves at a few miles per hour. So you could theoretically run all around Mercury and stay away from sunlight. And so that's in a short story, that's what they did. It's a story of them racing the sun around Mercury to get back to where they started again because the relief crew was going to land there. And there's another rocket coming, and hopefully that rocket would work. And it's just a little, little short story that I put together. Nice. Because Mercury is amazing. Link will be in the show notes. I think the link will be in the show notes. I'll have to find it. I haven't, I've wrote this years ago, and I haven't looked at it in a long time. But it's just a cool, fun little story. So we have the potential of landing on Mercury. There's no atmosphere to worry about. There's not a lot of gravity to worry about. It has a gravity of about Mars. But unlike Mars, it doesn't have an atmosphere because the solar wind rips the atmosphere away. So you can land on Mercury. The, the, one of the problems, though, is getting to Mercury is very difficult. If you saw how hard it is to get one of those boosters, SpaceX boosters, after lifts the rocket up to come back to Earth and land again, that's what it's like. You have to fall to Mercury. You have to fall a long way to get to Mercury. Mercury is really close to the sun. The sun's gravity is a lot stronger than Earth's gravity. And you have to fall all the way to Mercury and then stop before you crash into Mercury. Oh. that The physics of that is really hard. It takes a lot of energy to do that, to stop yourself before you slam into Mercury or miss Mercury and hit the sun. But we can do it with a big enough rocket and a good enough engineering and mathematics. You can land on the surface of Mercury. And there are places in Mercury that never see the sunlight. There are craters in the North Pole and the South Pole of Mercury that probably have water ice and are shielded from the sun. So we could live there. It'd be easier to live there than on Mars, probably. If you need sunlight, you just stick a solar collector up above the edge of the crater. Or you put a, a reflective thing up there to reflect light down so you can have daylight in the crater. We could theoretically live on Mercury. And we could do what I suggested on, on the moon in the last episode. We could put a dome over one of those craters and make a little artificial habitat for ourselves. What a cool idea. Yeah. So after the moon, Mercury might be our next target. Mars is far away and it's hard to get to also. And it's in the wrong direction. It's really cold. And I just, I just but like it's the, Mars, man. It is Mars. Seems to be good for marketing. It's a very it it's is. popular idea. Hey, when we're talking about Venus, I think we said this before on our show. I don't know if we said it last week or not. When we talk, did I, did I mention that if you're about 100 miles above the surface of Venus, you're at one atmosphere of pressure? No, but I've heard you say that before at the office. Yeah, that is fascinating. Okay. So you could put a blimp floating around on Venus. I think you just figured it out. And we could live there. All you need is an oxygen source. If you stepped out, you wouldn't even need a, a, you know, a NASA-style space suit. You don't need that a thick protective so. thing because it's the proper pressure. You just need some oxygen. Yes. So, all right. So, we got Venus. We got Mercury. What about Ganymede? Ganymede. Ganymede, the moon of Jupiter, is larger than the planet Mercury. That sounds good, but it's going to be cold. It has mm. a lot of water on it. You got to admit that no matter how far... It's mighty tempting. I mean, it's like by the time you get to Ganymede, if you've already terraformed the moon, probably Mars, and have the blimp around Venus, Ganymede is where it's at because we haven't been that far yet. And Jupiter, you know, that's where adventure is at. Yeah. Is wake up and roll over in bed and look out the window and there's Jupiter. <sighs> that sounds amazing. Yes. There's a lot of radiation there. We've got some gravity issues. There's a couple of other like, I don't know, Io, not, not Io, maybe Iapetus, I don't remember, Enceladus, that's around Saturn. So there's all these other moons around these big planets that are large. They might have water. 
They might be far enough away from the um, the planet that you don't get all these radiation effects. You don't want tidal stretching of your of your moon because you know it'd be hard to have buildings on something that's being significantly stretched every time the the moon rotates. But we have options. As always, though, there are monetary problems. There are technological problems. I mean, think if you're trying to terraform something like Venus. If you make a mistake early on, tough luck. Oh, we didn't want to convert the carbon dioxide into this. We want to make calcite. <laughs> Whoops, too late, buddy. You can't do, go back. Or, okay, now we got the pressure down. We got the heat down. Let's add some blue-green algae. Start making some oxygen. Oh, we didn't realize that was going to happen. Ah, too late. You can't go back. And if anything ever goes wrong, the whole system will come oh, crashing yeah. down. I mean, you think how hard it, you, you're aware of the biosphere out in Arizona yeah. where they put people inside this glass thing for months or they tried to anyway yeah, yeah. and how hard it was to regulate everything. They, they couldn't do it. They could not keep it sealed from the atmosphere. They could not generate all their own food and all their own oxygen. Imagine doing that on a planetary scale. Now, granted, planets don't change quickly. So as you're changing it, you can modify it and you know, try to balance things. But think of the whole global warming debate here on Earth. And that is still an open question. Maybe we should, we should do an episode on global warming. We should, we should, we should, we should. Sure. It is still an open question. Now, honestly, I'm not a global warming skeptic because I know the chemistry and I know the physics. I'm skeptical about how accurate people's predictions are. But if you add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, it should have an effect. Well, think of that on the scale of something like Venus. Wow. Yeah. So another solution, bioengineering. Maybe we don't use normal bacteria and normal algae, normal plants, or normal people. Maybe we genetically engineer people so they can tolerate low gravity, high radiation, you know, high carbon dioxide, so they can just genetically, they're more able to handle the new, unique situation on all these terraformed places that we might one day build. Wow. Yeah, what a cool idea that is. Yeah. Or forget about doing it this this week or this month or even this decade, let's have a thousand year plan. See, when you lay out a plan like that, it either sounds like it's impossible because we will never follow through. Yes, because of humans. Or it is bound to happen if we do follow through because on that scale, you've, made, you've just broken it down the project into so many small pieces that it's easy in comparison. Yeah, but humans have never been stable enough to do something that long-term. Yeah. Now, we have done things that have taken you know, generations, like building some of those giant Gothic cathedrals in Europe. It was 100 years from laying the foundation to when the thing was completed. So the people who started it, their grandkids and great-grandkids are completing it. That's amazing. But this is different because it's not like one city in France is going to terraform Venus. It's going to be, what, a company or country? The UN? Microsoft? I mean, who does the terraforming? And if a company does it, how do they guarantee that, you know, some future government is going to take over and not give them any money for all their efforts? Who would make an investment like that over the long term when there's so much uncertainty in it? So therefore, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And that hurts because I want it to happen. Mm, yeah. <sighs> One thing that would be pretty awesome is if a lot of this kind of effort could be put towards creating very interesting habitats on Earth. You know, what if we could visit blimps? What if we could visit underwater yeah. civilization? Yeah. You know, what if we could go to the, the caves that are, you know, a, a, a village? That, that, that would be a lot of fun. Really interesting. One of those fascinating little bits you get from Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth is how the elves live in the treetops. Yeah. And the dwarves have their fortress underground in a mountain. Uh, you know, we, exactly. It, yes, 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 yes. Hypothetically, those things could possibly happen, but they're not as fascinating to us for some reason. But they're a whole lot cheaper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, imagine a, um, a floating city that's out, you know, out of the hurricane belt, but somewhere in the central Pacific gyre or something like that. And it, it's 100 feet underwater. And, and so you have lots of sunlight. It's all glass. And, so, and plus being far underwater, even if there is a hurricane, you're pretty much out of the giant waves. And there's all these 
tubes leading up to the surface. And so there's like, you know, a, a house sized buoy with a boat dock and a, a door. And you go into the door and you get in an elevator and you come down to this underwater city and you just keep on growing it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger by adding more and more modules. There's no reason why we couldn't do that. And it's a whole lot easier than living on Venus. Or mm-hmm. let's build a giant dome and put it in the middle of the Sahara Desert where nobody lives. Oh, just because you can. Just because we can. Why not? That'd be living space. It'd be greenhouse space. It would keep the water in. Use of the space. It'd be usable space. It'd be great space. But, you know, who owns it? <laughs> That's yeah. kind of tricky. Oh, man. I've, the SpaceX stuff right now, they're getting assaulted by people who are complaining about environmental issues oh. down in Boca Chita, Texas. Mm. Oh, this explosion happened just, you know, just a few hundred meters away from prime turtle nesting sites. And all oh, the noise, these people who have their quaint, their quaint little beach houses are all of a sudden being assaulted by all this construction noise and the rockets going off and it's not pleasant anymore. And, and so the environmentally... If we want to do something of this scale, yeah. the Nazis are going to try to fight it at every step. Mm. Anyway, I would love to live in a one atmosphere pressure dwelling underwater. That That'd be, be fantastic. Awesome. Mm-hmm. We don't quite have the materials for it yet, but we'll get there. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, take a Perspex plastic and make a giant, giant, giant mold. So you pour the thing and there's no <laughs> seams or cracks. And it's spherical, and it just goes underwater. That sounds awesome. And it already has the tube going up. It's already built in. Hmm. Man. Yeah, tree city. Well, you could never build a tree city because you'd have to displace a spotted owl. But what if you took a desert and built a bunch of trees yeah. that are fake trees? Now you have shade. Or, or Rob, you know, there, there have been examples where there have been people who have successfully terraformed a portion of a desert uh, i don't know if terraforming is the right term but planted vegetation and got it to grow yes there are examples of that yes mm-hmm. so maybe you make a man-made forest yes. for this purpose you know keeping you know, could you keep the wildlife out and construct a forest where we could do we could inhabit it no yeah rather sure. than taking one that already exists and kicking the wildlife out maybe we find a spot and plant it there, and then we move in. Yeah, but then you get to this problem again. Just because you think it's a desert doesn't mean that the little species that live there don't like think it's home. Yeah. You know, oh, you're going to take the marsh wiggle and you're going to displace it from its normal desert habitat. You can't do that. Yeah, but I could make a billion dollars and three million people could live here, right here, and with a very low environmental impact. Of course, all the marsh wiggles will die, but you know, they're just little wormy things. Come on, let us build our city. No, I can easily see that. Or only take half of the desert. We'll leave the other half for all the little desert creatures. No, I mean, the, the green movement is inherently anti-human. And as we want to progress technologically, we're going to be fighting anti-humanism the whole way. People who think the humans are parasites, that we're weeds, that we're destroying the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I don't mean to get onto some anti-environmentalist rant here. That wasn't my purpose. Well, no, yeah. It's interesting. And you're not wrong. It's a big part of this, the terraforming project. Put a, put a lid on the, uh, the whole idea of terraforming and we'll push it off to a thousand years in the future where maybe we have enough money and the technology to do so. Uh, but I just don't think it's going to happen. We are, however, going to live on the moon in short time. So thank you, everybody who joined us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your friends and family. This episode's links and show notes to all of the terraforming and the side topics like Richard Branson's trip to space are in the show notes with this episode. Or not. That's right. Well, the links are there. Don't know if you went to space. Yeah. Yeah. That's available in in the show notes with this episode. You can also find that at our website, nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 63. And if you want to get Equinox Plus, that includes bonus episodes. So you get to hear more from us. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch his videos and join discussions and comments with other followers and viewers. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, 
Goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. So, okay. Yeah. I, I, I still think maybe the best bet for a lot of the concepts around terraforming is we may not get to the point that we we put man down on Venus because, like you said, all those forces are just opposing it. But just getting something like the, the blimp idea or a satellite would be close enough. I, I, I cannot imagine anyone who wouldn't want to be able to say, Guys, I saw Venus with my own eyes. It was this big. It looks like this. It was stunning. You know, it, on the dark side, it was. It's just stunning. On the lit side, you know, it, it is. It, it's breathtaking. It takes your breath away. You know, like having a satellite station you could live in, even not getting down on the surface of the moon, but beholding the moon, like filling up all of your vision out the window or outside of the dome overhead would be fantastic. Just a beautiful view. Having the view of Mars in person, you know, that would be incredible. But would you want to live there permanently? That's the question. No, (laughs) no, no. And what do we do about government in these places? What, What happens the first time a murder happens or theft or adultery or rape or someone wants to sue someone over slander or something like that? You just eject them. Well, well, what do you, can you? costs a lot of money what if someone goes bankrupt and they don't have enough money for the flight home uh, and do you yeah. have retirement communities there and um you know convalescent homes for someone who gets injured this is you're not i mean a lot of people mm. have this idealistic thing oh space is gonna be lovely no space is gonna stink because people are gonna be there <laughs> and it, it doesn't take many people before you have people problems mm. and so far space travel you know you have nasa you have very select astronauts who do what they're told and don't steal other people's stuff and things like that. Except there was a case of a, a um, an astronaut on the ISS who committed a crime. Oof. Yes, yes, yes. She was getting divorced from her wife, and she committed larceny or something like that. Mm. She did something about getting on bank on her banking system and transferred money or something like that from the ISS, which is about the least secure internet connection you could imagine (laughs) she committed fraud from space now you don't hear about this because nasa doesn't want you to know this but it was it was a thing for a little while oh Mm. that's another monkey wrench yes as if we didn't have enough reasons to make this hard rob yeah